The opinions expressed in these materials represent the personal views of the participants and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Salient. This information is neither an offer to sell nor a solicitation of any offer to buy any securities. Any offering or solicitation will be made only to eligible investors and pursuant to any applicable private placement memorandum and other governing documents, all of which must be read in their entirety. Reference to any third party, specific product, process, or service by trade name, trademark, or otherwise does not constitute or imply endorsement, recommendation, or favoring by salient. Coming to you today from New York City. Uh, so uh, to our audience, pardon any background noise, sirens, it's de Blasio's New York. It's not as tame as it was under Bloomberg. <laughs> uh, we should remind everyone this is the Epsilon Theory Podcast. I'm Michael Correo, Director of Investor Relations and Communications by day and DJ by night. Uh, thank you uh, to, to, to our fans who like our music. Uh, and I'm joined, of course, by Dr. Ben Hunt uh, of Salient Partners, Chief Risk Officer and author of Epsilon Theory. Thank you, DJ MC. Appreciate that. <laughs> Appreciate that. Yeah, the, the, the music's pretty good. I, I think you've, you've definitely done a good job with that. That's Thank great. you. Yeah. Uh, so we're, we're in the time machine, uh, uh, recording this a few days before it airs. Um, and uh, you mentioned that uh, you wanted to talk about something that's also a little bit magical, magical thinking specifically. Well, yeah, I tell you, Michael, I, I get questions a lot about, you know, coming up with uh, the, the topics and particularly the, the movie quotes and other pop culture references that I, that I write about in Epsilon Theory. And, and this is a topic I've been thinking about for a while, and it, and it really crystallized for me this week with the, the Fed and other central bank luminaries off on their summer retreat in, in, in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And uh, I can't explain how these things come up, but I, but I wanted to try to describe the process and walk through the process and actually engage in the process here for a podcast. And, and so the title for, for this thought process I've been having, it's been germinating for weeks now, is the, the notion of magical thinking, which is a, a, a term of art in uh, psychology. Uh, it's a term of art in uh, anthropology. And it, it's it, those two aspects of science, right? Psychology, thinking about the behavioral underpinnings of, of, of humans. Also, anthropology, sociology, the, the, the cultural or social underpinnings of, 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 social, of, of human behavior. You know, those are really big parts of what I try to write about in Epsilon Theory. And it is so striking to me the I'll call it the not just the theater around events like the Jackson Hole meetings the the like I say every every year in late August the central bankers get around and that get out there and that's become the focal point for the new what whatever new speeches or whatever new programs or whatever direction that central banks are going to be taking you know all eyes are on Jackson Hole right so there's a theater there's a social element to the, the, the Jackson Hole meetings themselves. But increasingly, I've been thinking about, well, what, what it, how do we think about the individuals who are there, right? So, so, so not just the theater and the narrative that emerges from the speeches that are given at Jackson Hole, but let's, let's, let's remember these, Janet Yellen, Draghi, and everyone else, they're just people. 
They're just people like you and me. And they have these elements of psychology and they live within these sociological constructs that impacts the way they behave and what they do. And I find that this concept of magical thinking, and I want to walk you through it in in, in a second, it really seems to kind of explain a lot for me when I think about the, frankly, the failures of the the, the Fed and their behaviors, failures on, on their own terms, right? right? I, I mean, failures to accomplish what they really thought they'd be accomplishing by now. So the, the, the idea of magical thinking really goes back to, you know, one of the first studies of sociological studies of, of magic. And there's this, uh, the, this British guy, James Fraser, who, who wrote a book, a couple of volumes called The, the Golden Bough. The, the, you know, the bow is in the, the branch the of a tree, right? Did you say bow? Yeah, the, the boat, the bow of a boat. Yeah, no, no, no. This is B O U G H. Okay, like the the like a, a branch of a tree, the, like the branch of a tree. Got it. Yeah, bow, right? I always get these these things. These, I think that's. How I, I read too much, right? I don't ever say these words. I don't ever say the words, so I can I can spell them, but I can't pronounce them a lot of times. But I'll go with bow here, right? So, so, so the golden bow is in the golden branch. And several volumes where he's basically doing historical and sociological study of magic, right? This is in the, the, the late 1800s. And he, he said, look, there, there are two basic kinds of magic in the world when you, when you look at, at, at history and, and, and other cultures. One is what he'd call um, a, uh, a, a preserved connection, so, for example, if you want to cast a magic spell by taking a, a, a lock of hair from somebody mm-hmm. and doing harm to that lock of hair, that's going to do harm to that person. Why? Because the magical connection is that there's a, 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 an invisible connection between the hair and the person. So if you do harm to the hair, you'll do harm to the person, right? So there's a whole category of magic around that, around the uh, a connection. Yeah. He, said, he said the other type of magic that you see it's really the magic of, of like to like, meaning that it, it doesn't have a connection, a lost physical connection, but it looks like the thing you want to impact. So a doll. A doll, right. So a voodoo doll would be the, the, the representation there. And there are, there are all sorts of examples of this like to like connection. One of my favorites is, that he writes about is, actually this is some of the, the, the sociologists, the early sociologists, who went out into the field studying "quote unquote" primitive cultures, right? And one of their favorites was for this example was uh, this this tribe that used crocodile teeth as the the, the focus of their magical spell to uh, make uh, banana plants grow, because crocodile teeth look like a banana; they're shaped like a banana, and they regenerate when you knock them out of the, the crocodile. So, of course, if you take crocodile teeth and you rub them on the banana plant, this will improve their ability to come back the next season and have big crops of bananas. And, and, and most of the, 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 uh, the sociologists, the early sociologists who took Fraser's work and looked at magic in, again, these so-called primitive cultures – it, it had that kind of Victorian attitude of, ha, 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 you know, aren't these silly people, you know, they're not as advanced, you know, as us. We're logical human beings here in our modern society. And, you know, they're like children. And, and 
to be fair, this is Cloud Levi Strauss, you know, who really became this really famous sociologist for good reason. He said, hey, hang on a second, right? So these principles that we're talking about here of magic, it's not just limited to so-called savages, right? But they are absolutely part of our culture too. And every human culture of every place and time has these principles embedded in them. And in particular... Fraser talks a little bit about this. Levi Strauss and some of these other uh, sociologists talked about it a little bit more. If you don't have that lock of hair, if you don't have the crocodile teeth, if you don't have the voodoo doll, you can still cast spells. You can still engage in magical thinking by using words, by using the name of the thing that you think will have the impact on the real life thing. Right, so so we have all these these spells where you talk about well, you know, you call up some demon or you'll have control over him if you know his name, right? So it, it's not just having the objects; it it becomes I'll call it a more advanced notion of magical thinking, and one that I think we'll recognize more often in our own society, where you're not actually saying, oh, here's a crocodile tooth to make the bananas grow. But you're saying, oh, if I call this invisible force by its proper name, I can control it and I can cast that spell and I, my thinking and my words can have the, this, this impact, this control. And so that was the notion of magical thinking in, in sociological terms. So the, the, the next phase of this was, was really this, this uh, in psychology. So this guy, uh, Jean Piaget. Who's, who's well, he, does, he really did a lot of uh, child psychology, talking about the developmental stages of, uh, of people, right, as we get older. And his point was, well, you know, this whole idea of magical thinking, you see it really pronounced in children between the ages of typically two and seven years old. And what he said, you know, a typical example would be, you know, you tell a kid, a four-year-old kid, uh, I'm sorry, Joey, but your, your, your dog died. They're, they're not able to process that in a way that an older child or an adult would process it. And, and so what you see in children, particularly really intelligent children, is that they engage in magical thinking. Whereas they think, well, if I can just think the right thoughts, or if I can just say the right words, the dog will come back to life. It's a, it's a very common thing in children of, 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 that, of that age. And, it, and it's related to a, another psychological concept called uh, solipsism. And solipsism... What's that? Oh, it's a great word. Yes, great words, right? So it's, it's the notion that the world is just me. That, 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 and, and you see this, again, a lot That's of just kids, a millennial. Right. Well, <laughs> this is the point, right? When people talk about, and this is going to be my point, Right. Is that this this notion that the solipsism is a very pronounced form of this, and and what it means when we say the world is all about me, it means literally that the entire world and all of its constructs and all of the people are really just there as a test. You see what I mean? I mean, I mean wow! I, I got to tell you, you see lots of uh, the the dystopian. Um, Children's literature, young adult literature is based on this sort of idea where, you know, you, Michael Correo, you're growing up, you know, your parents are not really your parents, right? The, the whole world is just kind of set up to, to be a test 
so that if you pass, you now become some grand potentate or the prince of, of whatever Narnia or whatever the, 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 the world that's setting up this, this sub-world is a test. It's a very common thing. Wow. That, you, you never had thoughts like that when you were a kid? Um, well, I wondered if my parents were really my parents, <laughs> but <laughs> not so much about the testing part. Well, I, I, I tell you, it, it, is, it is not uncommon at all to have those sort of thoughts in kids, particularly uh, really um, higher. It, the higher you test on, on IQ, store, uh, IQ scores, the more likely you are to have these sort of thoughts that everything in the world is simply there to, to, to test you or, or, or there for you. And it goes along with this magical thinking, right? Because if, if, if you're in a world where it's your thoughts and you're just casting the right spell can do anything, it's exactly the same thing as if the, the world is just there as a test and, and your actions are just there to you know, further you along because the whole world is all about you. Right. I always find that little kids are very open and they're, they're the ones who see ghosts. Uh, there, there are lots of stories about kids always seeing ghosts and, and supernatural phenomenon. They're very attuned to that just because they're open to that. So maybe that's, that's linked to this. It's all part and parcel of this. Yeah. Right. And it's all part and parcel of what Piaget Fraser, Levi Strauss, the, the whole notion of magical thinking. And so it's applied both to supposedly immature societies from the, the early sociologists, and it's applied today to immature human beings, to children. This notion that they have not grown up enough, either as a, as a culture or as, a, as an individual human being, to see the logic in the world and to think in terms of causality but instead persist in the notion that this is a world driven by invisible forces, that if only one thinks the right thoughts and says the right words, you can control those invisible forces. And my point, of course, is that it's not just immature societies, right? and it's not just immature human beings who engage in magical thinking, but it is absolutely part and parcel of the... <laughs> <laughs> the apex, if you will, or the perceived apex of, of our Western civilization today as it takes shape in these institutions like, like central banks, right, which I think are engaged absolutely in their own version of magical thinking. And I, look, I don't think it's an accident that magical thinking pervades institutions like the Fed because they are academic institutions. They are, right? Right. All the, the, the Fed government, with, with a very few exceptions, certainly the entire Fed staff, it's, it's, it's like an academic department. And in, as I mentioned earlier, it's particularly these high IQ academic kids who have these fantasies that the world is a test for them, that their thoughts and their words can control the world. And I got to tell you, this is why a lot of kids like this go into academia, right? go into a world where, in fact, your thoughts and your words do determine your success, your, your, uh, your outcomes in that world. Right? And, and you take that into an institution like the Fed. So it's not that the, the, the Fed or the Fed staffers or the Fed governors think that they're pulling a fast one 
on the rest of the world with the things that they say and the ideas that they come up with. It's not like they're thinking, going back in a room and saying, wow, geez, well, what can we say now to, to achieve our secret ends? No, they really believe this stuff. They really believe that, well, if we just cast the spell in a bit more effective fashion, if we say that our inflation target is 3% instead of 2%, well, oh my goodness, then we will solve this issue and the world, these invisible forces will in fact bend to our, our will and our thoughts. I, I got to tell you, the more I think about this and the, you, you look at the, the words that Fed staffers and Fed governors say, I, 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 I really think this has legs, this notion of magical thinking. And it, 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 it will go back to this notion of, of when they talk about inflation targets, you know, what's the, is there a, a real world logic to it? What is the spell they're trying to, 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 to create? And I, I, I do want to spend a second on that, right? Because when you, when you read about it, like in the, the Wall Street Journal about they're saying, oh, we're talking about raising the inflation target. What, what, what does that mean? You know, what's, what, is there a logic behind there? What is the spell they're trying to, to, to create? So I want to talk a little bit about that. But I also want to talk about what is happening in reality, right? What aren't they talking about? And I'm, I'm really struck by the fact that we've seen LIBOR rates, you know, short-term interest rates for the real world, right? The, the London Interbank you know, interest rate. So it's basically, what, what's the real world short-term interest rate? That's been going up phenomenally over the last really two months. And, and I want to talk about why it's been going up and my, my, what I'm puzzled with and why I think this notion of magical thinking has got legs is that you don't hear anyone at the Fed talking about that. You don't hear them talking about what's happening in the real world with LIBOR. Why not? Because that's not the world they're in. Right? They're in a world where they really believe that their words and the, the, the ideas and the thoughts that they have, that they think that's what constructs reality. When in fact, and, and, and by juxtaposition, things in reality that are clearly not driven by their words and thoughts, well, in a very real sense, that doesn't exist. So who sets LIBOR? It's the conglomerate of the banks, right? Well, li LIBOR, expensive. yeah, and this, this is part of the problem. LIBOR is supposed to be a mar essentially a market price for money. Right. Right. That's what it's supposed to be. And for a lot of years, and this is the subject of, you know, a number of, of, of legal proceedings, the bank desks that would set LIBOR, the market participants who would set it, were engaged clearly in um, you know they were they were they were colluding to set LIBOR at where they wanted to set it for their own ends right right but uh, but what I'll say is is that LIBOR is, is like is, is a price it's, it's like the, the the price of a stock is just the price of money right that's and, and and I think when you see LIBOR today and certainly with the the, the level of scrutiny that regulators have on LIBOR price setting today, it, it for all price purposes, for all that I can tell, it is a market price today. But that is the reality of what short-term interest rates are. It's LIBOR. Right? Now, 
In fact, let me start there with what LIBOR is and how it's set and why it's gone up. Let's talk about what's happening in the real world. And then we'll come back to this notion of the spells that the Fed is trying to cast in their efforts at, at magical thinking, right? But here's, here's what's happening in the real world. In the real world, we've had a massive shift in the regulations around money market funds. So we're all familiar with the money market fund is. That's where you're supposed to have a safe store of cash in amounts that are too great to just put into a bank account and have the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation guarantee the safety of your your, your bank account. Right? So whatever those limits are, two hundred and something thousand, right for 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 bank account. So let's say you're an institution, you're a corporation, you've got a billion dollars. Now you don't want to invest it. You don't want to lock it up, right? Even in a stock that's liquid, you can trade. I want to keep it as cash. I want to keep it as cash. So, so, so what am I going to do? I'm going to put it in a money market fund. I'll get a little bit of interest for that. Why? Why do I get any interest at all on this kind of short term my, my cash account? Why isn't it like a bank of vault? Well, it's because what money market funds do to offer you a, 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 an amount of interest, it's got to be really short term, mm-hmm. right? Because this is this is this is supposed to be a cash account. Right, and this is where LIBOR is going to come into it—the price of money on these short-term basis. Well, there are there are entities, governments, and corporations that want to borrow money for very short periods of time. So we're familiar with with governments doing this, right? So they issue short-term, uh, you know, ninety-day, you know, treasury obligations. Right? So they're going to borrow money from the, the money market fund organizer for a very short period of time. We, we understand that. Right? What's less appreciated are the non-government entities that want to borrow money for a short period of time. And this falls under what's called commercial paper. So let's say you're a, you're a big corporation and uh, you're, you know, a Fortune 100 corporation. You're a real world company. You've got, you've got a payroll to meet. Right. So, so you, you know how much you're going to need to pay your people every other week or, you know, however it's scheduled, right? So you know what your cash needs are going to be to, to, to make payroll. But, you know, you're, you're a huge company. You've got 100,000 employees. It's not a small amount of money mm-hmm. that you've got to have in, in very set amounts, right? You know what you're going to need every other week or, or every week. So what do you do? Do you but your the the money, the cash that you get from your business operations is going to be kind of it's, it's always lumpier than that, and you know you, you're you've got this kind of a it's not it's not merely an accounting issue. It, it really is a real world the the flow of my business, my cash needs going out might not match so precisely with my cash income, my cash flow coming in. So what they do is, is they, they say, look, well, let's kind of separate these two issues, right? We, we've got plenty of cash coming in. It's not like we're borrowing money to, to put in our bank account here. It's just we, we, we want to kind of separate the two, our cash income from our cash, cash outlays. And because our cash outlays, things like payroll, is so predictable, why don't we do this? Why don't we just every 90 days... You know, we'll do a series of rolling notes, short-term notes, where we borrow money. We can borrow it really cheap. We're going to borrow it from these money market firms, right? And so, we'll, and we'll pay them a little bit more interest than governments will pay, 
because we're not a government, right? We're we're a Fortune 100 company. We're we think we're safe as a rock. We're whatever you want to rate us. We're at that high level rating, AAA for commercial paper, but we're not a government. So what commercial paper is is very short term debt that's taken on by corporations. It's the name corporate paper, and that is the source of so much of the interest that you get if you've got your, you know, $10 million in a money market fund, right? These are called prime funds, prime money market funds in the, in the lingo. And to distinguish them from, I'll call them government money market funds. So if you're looking at, say, you've got two, you've got a, the, the money market fund company you're, you're, you're working with, says, okay, we've got two options for you. You can put your money into the government money market fund, which is safe as houses and, um, you know, but has a very low interest rate, maybe a zero interest rate. We've got our expenses, right? So so really, we should be charging you money just to keep it in that government fund because it bears very little interest. But we're going to waive those fees for now. So, So basically, if you go into that government money market fund, it's like a cash account. Uh, it's not going to pay you any interest. Or you can put your money over here in this prime money market fund. Still has the protection that money market funds have, meaning, and I'll get to this later, they can't break the buck. All right, we'll talk a second about what that means. This it, It's just like another money market fund, but it's going to pay you a little bit more interest. Not a lot. Not a lot. Maybe it's, I don't know, you know, 40 basic, you know, half a percentage point a year, let's say. Right in that prime money market fund, but that's half a percentage point more than you're getting in the government fund, and on a lot of money, adds up. Yeah, makes a difference. Yeah. It absolutely does. Yeah. Absolutely, it does. Right. So, a lot of the money that's historically gone into these money market funds has gone into these prime funds, which offer a little bit more interest because they are. These, the, it's mostly based, it's got some government bonds in there as well, but it, it's, it's more chock full of that short-term commercial paper. Right? Again, safe corporations, you're sparring a short period of time. It's not like you're taking on a 10-year loan in there for your, you know, the, the money market fund that may have to pay out immediately. That's not it. Short-term, safe corporations, but it's corporations. And it's corporations that can go under if things get really bad in the world. And so what happened in 2008 when Lehman Brothers, which was an issuer of commercial paper, went bankrupt is that a number of money market funds that were offering that prime money market account, they broke the buck. And what that means was that they didn't have $1 in assets for every potential $1 that they would have to pay out if everybody took their money out. They broke the buck, which was the, that, and that's the big crime, right? And I, and I mean that almost literally, right, in, in money market world. Because you're, 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 you're putting it there because you need it available immediately. And you need to know that it is, again, safe as houses. And if one of those commercial paper issuers and banks issue commercial paper. They're big corporations. They got to do payroll. They got to do all their things. If they, if any of them files bankruptcy, well, that paper 
ain't worth anything. And so even if you just got a little bit of it in your money market fund, right, that's enough to bring you below the $1 to $1 ratio. You've broken the buck. So the assets in the fund are, let's say, 97 cents on the dollar. And that's what you can't have happen in any market fund. All right. So fast forward to, to today. And over the, the, the past seven years, since seven and a half years, since Lehman went out, the SEC has been looking at, well, we need, to, we need to change our rules around money market funds. Because what we did, what the government did as a reaction to the crash in 08, was the government stepped in and said, you know what? We are going to guarantee these money market funds at essentially any level of, of, of deposit. Even the prime funds. Even the prime funds. Right. And so the government said, well, you know, we stepped in, we bailed out these funds, bailed them out. But we're not going to do that going forward. We're going to change our regulatory environment around money market funds. So that if you want our insurance, if you want the government to be there to insure this, we are going forward and starts this year, starting in October, we are only going to insure the government money market funds. We're not going to put that guarantee behind these prime money market funds. Well, as you can imagine, what we've seen since this rule was announced was a giant sucking sound of money coming out of the prime money market funds. Rush to the door and into the government. And into the government funds. So so, so what's, what's the impact of that? Well, the impact of that is I'm still, let's say I'm still this Fortune 100 company. I still need my commercial paper, right? I still need to, to, to find somebody to lend me money on a rolling series of very short-term dates, right? 90 days, let's say. But the money market, the prime money market funds that, that used to be the, the lender to me, well, they've got something in most estimates are about $500 billion less wow. that they need to borrow. So it's classic supply and demand, right? There's less demand for the commercial paper that I want to sell to you, Mr. Money Market Fund. There's less demand for it, right? So what do I have to do? I have to offer you a better price. I have to offer you a higher rate of interest for my commercial paper. The money I want to borrow from you, Mr. Prime Money Market Fund, now that you are $500 billion less, I have to offer you a higher rate of return to attract people to, to, to fund my commercial paper. And it is that market transaction, that's what LIBOR is. All right, so LIBOR is the market price of this short-term money that corporations or anyone else wants to borrow. And what we've seen in LIBOR, which is now pushing like 90 basis points, right? So it was, it was, it's gone from, I don't know what LIBOR was, you know, 10 basis points, something, something crazy low, crazy low, right? Because that's all corporations had to offer in terms of interest rates when these prime money market funds were being backed by the government and had the same essential guarantee as government bonds. 
Now they've got to offer something that's, yeah, I think it's like 90 basis points. It's a, it's in just a few months, it's a huge increase, sharp increase in the actual real world interest rate, short term interest rates for money. Now, you, you know, what's, what's coming? What, what I'll say a couple of things about one, this is exactly what happens when you have as well-intentioned as regulation can be, you always have these uh, unintended consequences. Always. Because that LIBOR rate affects everyone in the world, in the real world, right? It affects your credit cards. It affects your mortgage. Expect it, your auto loan. All of these, I'll call them derivatives. They're basically contracts. All these credit contracts so many of them are based on what LIBOR is. I think student loans too, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, anything yeah. you can borrow, the whole world, the whole real world of credit is based on, well, what's the market price of credit? And that's LIBOR. And we've seen this dramatic increase in these interest rates. What is what does an increase in interest rates do? Well, it's, it, it, it tightens things. It makes, you know, the, as the cost of money goes up, that's, that's a drag on the real world, on the real economy. It's, it's why we go through all these machinations. Oh, is the Fed going to raise interest rates? Or they're not going to raise interest rates. Well, the real world impact of this is already happening with LIBOR as the unintended consequence of, quote unquote, reform in the money market industry. And, and, and look, the, there are going to be more unintended consequences of this. One unintended consequence of this is going to be that the government funds, where a lot of the money is coming in, well, for the last seven years, these funds have been unprofitable for the money market, for the, the banks and the other institutions that offer them. Why? Because these are you have to use the government debt, the short-term government debt. And look at where interest rates are, short-term government interest rates are. They're zero. They're less than zero in, in, in many areas of the world, right? So how, how can a for-profit institution like a bank offer a government money market fund where they're not, they're not getting any interest off of this and they have real cost associated with it? The people, the, the everything else associated with it. How can they continue to, to basically run that business at a loss, which is what they've been doing for the past seven years? Because if, if, if you really ran it just to, to break even, you would need to charge the depositors in a government money market fund a little bit of money. In effect, a negative interest rate. So when I say that negative interest rates are, in fact, coming to the U.S., you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna feel them in these money market funds. Because you are now preserving, if you stay in a government money market fund, you are preserving the guarantee that your money is going to be safe, but you're going to have to pay for it. It comes at a cost. comes at a cost, right? So you are, if you're, you think, and, and look, what I don't know is, is how does that change behaviors, right? Because it's one thing to get no interest or, you know, five basis points a year, five one hundredths of a percent a year on my money market account. That's one thing. It's another thing, particularly, again, as you pointed out, when you're talking about large sums of money, which you are in these cases, if I'm paying 10, 20 basis points a year. I mean, it's crazy, right? I'm going yeah. to be paying money for the privilege of lending it to governments 
on a short-term basis. But that's the world we're in. That's the unintended consequences absolutely coming down the pike just in money market world. In what used to be money market world, these prime funds, these are now all turning into short-term bond funds where they are priced daily. And, and, And look, you no longer have that, you can't break the buck protection. You no longer have that government backstop. But now corporations are having to pay a higher rate of interest, so you're actually getting a little more interest there. So the market will figure this out. But the impact is going to be severe on either people who weren't expecting it or are operating at such you know close margins that they can't afford that. Right? It is going to cost corporations more money to roll over their corporate their their commercial paper now. It's going to be a cost to people to, to keep their money in that safe government money market fund now. Or you can go into the, the, the short-term bond fund. It'll pay a little bit more interest, but you won't have the guarantee. There are no free lunches. And the cost of these lunches is revealed when you have well-intentioned regulation that comes and changes the status quo. That's what's happening in the real world. And yet, you haven't heard boo about this from, as far as I'm aware, any Fed governor, anything that's going on in, in, in Jackson Hole. Instead, they are living in their, honest to God, it's a fantasy world. It is a world of magical thinking where they are now talking about, well, we've been so spectacularly unsuccessful at getting inflation up to our 2% target. Uh, uh, We're just not saying the words right, right? We just need to change our magic spell and we will create the reality that we want to create. So instead of that 2% inflation target, no, 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 let's make it a 3% inflation target. And by just by the sheer power of our words and our magical thinking, that will help. That'll get us back you know, on track to, 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 to grow this economy. Similar idea is that, okay, we're not going to target an inflation rate. We're going to target, right, prepare for some words, nominal GDP growth rates. It's the same thing, okay? What they're saying is that our intention, our our target here is to get nominal, i.e. inflation plus real growth rates up to some number. And you, Mr. Market, you should know that that is our intention and we're not going to stop until we get there. Now, the reason that these words may have power, the reason that these words have power in markets is that they are taken by market participants like 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 me, like you, like our firm, as okay. This is showing the type of policies that they will implement, meaning that if they raise the inflation target to three percent, and we're nowhere near even the two percent they've talked about in the past, well, that means they really will keep rates lower for longer. They really will do more to try to juice the economy. So that's that's the intent behind the words. And, and, and look, the words have had an attempt. The, the, we, we live in this magical thinking world where we are participants in it as much as uh, victims of it. And, and that's kind of the, the, the meta aspect of this, right? And, and, and the way I, I think about it 
this is going to be my, my, my pop culture reference to it, and I'll, 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 I'll try to bring this all home with this. But Annie Hall, the great, yeah, from, from my probably the best Woody Allen movie. Um, at the at the, at the end of the movie, it, the movie starts and ends with with Woody Allen uh, speaking into the camera, basically giving a, a couple of kind of you know he's a stand up comedian before he you know did it. Can't did, imagine did how movies. terrible he was. Right? No, no, no. You see, it hurts. Always. This is back in the day, you know, when you you know, you had albums. Stand up comedians had albums, and uh, anyway, so um, it's good. But he starts off the movie with a couple of jokes, speaking into the camera with a couple of jokes. And the, the jokes are supposed to be illustrative of his um, ideas about, about relationships. And he ends the movie with a, with a he says, oh, here's, here's another joke. So, so I'm going to tie it all together with this. He says, the, the guy goes in to, uh, to, to, to talk to his uh, psychiatrist. And he says, uh, doctor... Uh, I, I, I really need your help. It's not about me, but it's about my brother. Because uh, my, my, my brother, he, he's convinced he's a chicken. And the psychiatrist says, well, all right, well, that's, that, that's very serious. Why don't you have him committed to a, a mental hospital? And the guy looks at him and says, well, I would, but I need the eggs. <laughs> that's our relationship with the Federal Reserve and with central banks. Right. We can talk all we want and we know that what they're doing is is crazy. It's crazy. It is magical thinking. It's magical thinking. The notion that these words have any sort of impact on the real world and vice versa. What's happening in the real world apparently has no impact on what they're thinking. But we need the eggs. We need the eggs. And so that's going to conclude the, 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 the podcast for today. A little, little Woody Allen in Annie Hall. Uh, it's magical thinking. The Wrap Fed is convinced the they're chicken. But damn it, we need the eggs. All right. Well, it's lunchtime. So egg sandwiches. Today. There you go. There you go.